HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, welcome to Heritage Radio Network On Tour. I'm Lisa Held, and today we're broadcasting live from the Young Farmers Conference at Stone Barns. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts and the Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture for making our coverage possible. So, first guests of the day. This is exciting. <laughs> I'm here with Connor Studman from TerraGenesis International and Christine Sue from Pasture Map. Thank you for being here, both of you. Happy to be here. Sure thing. Um, we were talking a little bit before, and we've already talk about, talked about glaciers and regenerative dumplings so far. So <laughs> this is going to be a really interesting conversation. <laughs> um, I think that um, the best place to start is for you each just to talk a little bit about what you do. Uh, Christine, you want to start? Sure. So I'm the founder and CEO of PastureMap, which is a software company that helps regenerative farmers and ranchers with grazing planning and management. So it's a software platform that helps them plan out grazing and do so in a way that sequesters more carbon in the soil. Great. Connor? Um, I work with TerraGenesis International and a few other organizations. I am a farm business planner and ecological designer and climate educator and work on a lot of aspects of the intersection between the climate crisis and um, farm business viability. Hmm. So you're both working in areas where you were farming and then you recognized you had some knowledge that you could share with other farmers, 
right? Do you like you're you started? No, no, that's I'm not, not a farmer at all. No, you're I, not a farmer I, at no, all. I'm a city oh. girl. No, wow. So, I, so yeah, how did yeah, you get to? My my career was in business and ah. in uh, specifically helping private companies build software platforms to track metrics. And then uh, my personal story is I had a bunch of food allergies and in gut inflammation issues, which led me to look for um, farmers, essentially, who could make food that I could eat without getting sick. Hmm. And then because I owed a big debt of gratitude to the farmers and ranchers, I went back to school and got an agriculture degree and interned at a whole bunch of farms as a farmhand, uh, and then essentially made up my own degree in pastoral grazing systems. <laughs> uh, like, traveling around different continents, New Zealand, Australia, um, yeah, shoveling manure. <laughs> um, so you did do some farming. Yeah, so I studied, yeah. well, as a, as a farmhand. I, I right. actually, like, after, even, even after 10 years in the industry, I wouldn't call myself a farmer. Um, and uh, realizing that I could help because I saw every farm with stacks of paper and notebooks and, like, charts on the wall to manage because uh, regenerative grazing, planning out rotations, is really complex when you're, it's, it's moving land and uh, moving animals, land and fence and water. Um, and as a former data person, I was like, oh, okay, I can, I can help with this. And also mm. for the next, since we're at the Young Farmers Conference, um, we have a huge generational transition uh, that's underway. And a lot of that knowledge is in farmers' heads with 40 years of experience. How do we actually get that out of their heads and digitize it so that the next generation doesn't start from scratch? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Connor, was your, did the work that you're doing, did that come out of, like, were you farming first and then recognized, oh, I have some skills that I could share with other farmers? Well, so there was farming in my family two generations ago, but it was, it was like, you know, dirt floor, sod house, subsistence poverty farming mm. um, that people left, um, understandably, um, and when they had the ability to, and uh, but I was also um, a lot of my a lot of my parents' friends growing up were nuclear weapons disarmament activists. Wow. So I was exposed to a lot of information about the end of the world at a very young age, wow. and um, and and so you know you were I, dealing with all the stuff that a lot of us are now like, oh my god, climate <laughs> crisis. You've been dealing with this feeling for yeah, a lot pretty longer. much. So. Um, so, you know, I, I went in, as a teenager, I started working on farms uh, in Maryland, a um, place that we were talking about having in common also, um, in Maryland and then on the West Coast. I worked probably five seasons on different small diversified farms, annual and perennial. Um, but I was also really deeply studying ecology and the s stories of the different places that I was living in and traveling to. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so as the, as the, the, the thinking was developing and the practices were developing in the mid to late 2000s, <clears throat> which, you know, which have been, the practices of are decades or centuries or millennia old, but the kind of modern thinking of carbon farming was coalescing um, in the last decade. Um, you know, in working on that with, the, with a bunch of the people that I was working on it with, um, what really became clear was that was that working on not just the carbon farming practices themselves, but working on the business viability and the business strategy mm. was really necessary because um, you know sort of the sort of the the hard news of the current situation is that um, you know I mean cl climate change is on track to devour everything we're trying to do right um, and yet um, and agriculture can play this significant role although 
importantly, not a silver bullet role. That's very, that's very important. That's that mm -hmm. idea that all we have to do is, you know, do holistic grazing worldwide or, you know, do XYZ, do biochar worldwide, and that will solve climate change. That's not backed by the science. Right. We have um, to do everything. Basically. We have to do everything. And that's, that's what the work of Project Drawdown makes so clear. Um, but, but uh, so although agriculture can play this really significant role, like can, can take a significant percentage of the emissions reduction and sequestration that's needed, um, it is currently not business effective for most farms to do that because the public sector has not effectively has not effectively supported and incentivized that positive environmental externality. Right. And and it is not even really anywhere close to doing that currently. So um, so it requires a basket of other business strategies um, other than waiting for the public sector to get on board or waiting for environmental markets to kind of fully fund the transition because transitioning to carbon farming regenerative agriculture systems is a significant business transition. It's not just a change in production practices in generally. It's generally an actual change in, in business strategy. It can be a change in markets. Mm -hmm. um, and, and often it involves diversification and or intensification of production. And that can require different equipment, different skills. So it's a very, it's a very place by place because different land is unique and very farm business by farm business question about what the best pathway is for the producers who want to work at the leading edge of the industry. Right. This, I mean, this is sort of a great place for us to go because I think it's where your work um, intersects to you is this, this place where you're trying to make carbon farming economically um, <laughs> not just viable, but make it so that when farmers choose to adopt these practices, it's actually better for them financially, right? And that's kind of where the magic happens. So let's talk a little bit about how you're each doing that. Maybe, Christine, can you talk a little bit about data? Because I feel like there's this data gap when it comes to um, carbon sequestration and farming, and, and Pasture Map is kind of yeah. looking at I mean, that, it's, right? It's much more complicated than it seems at first blush, right? Uh, and coming into it, I think I, I was maybe naively also um, you know, enchanted by this idea that we can just save the world with regenerative agriculture. And then you get into, so going to thousands of ranches and actually getting on the ranch and looking at what the, like the very practical things that need to happen for somebody to start doing regenerative grazing in their context depends on what kind of soils they have, how big are those pastures, can they feasibly do temporary fence on a 40,000 acre ranch that has canyons in it. Mm. Um, and so it's very context dependent for each of the ranch, and I'll speak to ranching because that's what I know. Right. Um, what are you trying to accomplish uh, that is appropriate for the context? What kinds of species of plants, what kinds of species of animals are you trying to bring back? And it gets really complex. And then um, often some of that can be grant funded, so I do want farmers and listeners to know that you actually can grant fund a lot of this through NRCS, like fence development, water development, infrastructure development is a really big part of it. Um, and then there are certain pockets like Colorado, there's mad agriculture in California. Um, there is the Soil Carbon Coalition that can help you with business planning. Obviously, we have an expert here who can do that. Um, so, so leaning on a lot of technical help. Um, and then after almost a decade in the industry, I realized also markets is a huge part that mm. is not addressed because, as Hunter said, if you're going to try to do regenerative grazing, sometimes you may have to make a decision. Am I going to direct market my beef 
uh, am I, how do I capture, if, there's, if the funding doesn't cover everything that it requires to make these changes, um, I don't want to be selling commodity beef anymore, necessarily. I want to get right. paid for ecosystem services, and those markets are still very nascent. Um, so your, your next guest is Anthony Mint, who's, talking, who's going to talk about um, ways to get other private sector players involved, like restaurants, to pay for farmers to do some of these practices. Mm. And I think, as you said before, it's going to take all of us. Like, it's yes and. We're going to have to do, the private sector's going to have to do it. Um, from the marketing perspective, having a rancher um, sell into a commodity market at a fixed price that the market dictates is very different from having them take on the entire supply chain of owning that animal all the way through the supply chain and then trying to balance selling steaks and ground and whole animal. Um, so that's actually where my work is now evolving past pasture map is um, from the consumer standpoint, uh, I think, are there there, I think it's going to be yes hands. There's going to have to be grant funding for ecosystem services, okay. and there's going to have to be um, there's going to have to be other players paying for the data to show that. Um, and the data depends. It's not just it's not as simple as oh, this farm increased soil organic matter by one percent. It's mm. actually do they increase the, the right species? Did they increase the right birds that you want? Um, and the, and consumers are going to have to play a big part in uh, buying the kind of food that supports those practices. Right. Can I expand or add some things to that? Because um, yeah. <clears throat> the um, so often when we think about environmental markets, um, the primary focus is on carbon markets, and that's and that's appropriate because mm -hmm. because that's the you know that's the primary greenhouse gas externality that is driving the climate disasters that are happening and, and that we're heading towards. Um, and so the you know ways to nudge the economy in the way it works towards a situation where polluters are paying for their greenhouse gas emissions mm. and that money is paying for this resequestration of those same emissions by farmers that's the kind of economic relationship that that we can and need to head towards um, but those aren't the only environmental Absolutely. markets and 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 also there there are a number of different policy instruments that can create market conditions like that. Um, in, you know, in, there's, a, there's an early example of that with California's cap and trade market um, and with the some of the funding from that going to the Healthy Soils Initiative. Um, but you know, I, I want to speak also to, um, nutri to nutrient pollution reduction markets. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so there are federally mandated, there are federally mandated um, pollution limits on water bodies and waterways that EPA set, generally back in the 70s and 80s. And um, states generally were given targets that they had to hit by a certain date. They usually were given 20 to 30 years to hit those targets. Right. And in general, the states did not hit those targets. So then there's a more punitive set of requirements that EPA brought in saying, okay, now you have to, now you have to, you know, even go on an even steeper curve of emission reduction. Okay. And otherwise, there's fines, and there'll be even more punitive fines if you don't meet these next targets. And so, for instance, in just the gay watershed where I grew up and where Right. Where, where some, some you all have mentioned to, um, you know, that, and, and that, well, that, the important thing to know is that that was a federally driven process by EPA that, that led to the state of Maryland in partnership with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, um, among a number of other things, putting in place a 75% cost share of cover cropping in the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Right. And that includes cover crop adoption of over 50% for farmers and, in that watershed. I think Maryland is one of the most successful cover cropping. Um, and to be clear, like cover cropping is an important and tiny 
piece of the overall right. carbon farming story. It's I totally agree with this. Yeah. Uh, I, to draw an example in California, I mean, people have been talking about carbon for a really long time. The Marine Carbon Project has been gathering data on carbon sequestration with compost and other things. Um, and now we have the, the Healthy Soils Initiative. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for um, also to capture public imagination and, and pressure for things like wildfire, right? So wildfire is top of mind for everybody in California right now. Of course. And where we might actually see a lot of regenerative practices getting funding is we're, we're working with Sonoma and Mendocino County ranchers to to um, talk about making a region-wide grazing map of mapping where the fuel loads are, like where is there grazable land that is getting encroached with brush, and then can we actually have the state pay for farmers to uh, and ranchers to graze for wildfire uh, prevention, right? Yeah, and if I can just add yeah. another thing to that, so, and this is another linkage to, to data and analytics with, um, with kind of environmental planning and, and, and regenerative agriculture. So one of the projects I've worked on in the past year um, is with an organization in Southern California, White Buffalo Land Trust. Um, Jesse Smith is here at the conference. Mm. Um, and you know, and it was it was looking at a you know a particular a particular landscape in Santa Barbara County. Um, for an ex a significant expansion of regenerative grazing, but part of what we were looking at is how can how can diversified ecological ranching include and integrate with and bring in you know research and philanthropic funding for oak regeneration and oak rest oak forest restoration because um, you know because there's a there's a there's a oak reproduction crisis in a lot of California and it's there's a lot of climate change stressors and some of those landscapes landscapes are really vulnerable to wildfire and they play a big role in in mitigating the effect of wildfire so um, so I think in but but the, the important thing is that it's different in different places. Yes. And so there's a place-specific thought process that we were going through and, and, and are continuing to go through in that region of California. There's a different place-specific thought process um, in the Low Sierra and in, and, in every, and in every place has its own unique considerations around this conversation that people really have to dig into rather than just replicating a set of best practices everywhere. Right. So we're talking about a lot of um, really big ideas, policy, um, companies that you work with that are kind of implementing these ideas all over the, all over the country. Um, for young farmers that are here, that are, are watching, um, that are listening and are like, yeah, carbon sequestration, <laughs> I want to I sequester carbon yeah. on my farm. Like, what, what's the advice that you give um, to just get started, to be involved in this kind of farming? Build a viable business. Uh, that's the number one. Um, I was going to say, we, this conversation is wide-ranging, as many people in this movement uh, like to talk. It's quite esoteric. I like to quote AOC, that when you're building a movement, everywhere you advance, the front line matters. And I think that's very much yeah. the case yeah. mm. for regenerative agriculture. Um, and we don't talk about the people part of it enough. We need to have a vibrant, diverse, inclusive movement of people on the land. We need to heal our communities as much as we need to heal the soil. Um, and so the most important thing for uh, young farmers, I think, is I, I get concerned about how extractive farming work is. Because mm. like a lot of people get in to, to try to save the world. Or even, I was talking yesterday to some folks who were like, it's fine, I just want to feed my community. And that is totally OK. Like That is yeah. great and honorable, and we need vibrant community farmers. Um, and, and we're not going to have those if we don't have viable businesses. So I think business planning, strategic planning, like um, before, it's almost like, 
pests. So there are some really great multi-generational farmers here who I know are regenerative farmers, um, but aren't necessarily, you know, don't have the capacity to participate in all these programs, but they're doing the work. And yeah. so before you, before you um, dive into all the associations that we were just talking about, make yeah. sure that there's, like, you are producing a product that you have a market for and that they are paying you the f a fair price for what you're providing. Yeah, I, that was exactly my thought about the number one huh. thing is do what makes sense for your business viability. And in the long run, your business viability and your land-based viability are the same. Yes. But in the short term, that's not always the case. And sometimes there's hard decisions that, that, that people have to make. And, um, you know, I think, I think the, other thing, the other thing I would add to that is that, um, you know, like right now, there's a, like, We've talked about how the conversation is wide-ranging, and I would actually, I would actually suggest that what we're talking about is not abstract, though. Okay. It actually is the full complexity of how the world works, right. and and farming is a agriculture is a profession and an industry that actually requires an engagement with the full complexity of how the world works, and so it's very like embodied, hands-on machines and animals and fencing work, but it's 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 also very intellectual work in this very applied way because. Because the, you know, the, the questions, like, for instance, um, you know, Soulfire Farm has been sharing this statistic recently a lot, that 80% um, of agricultural labor in the U.S. is Latino, yep. mm. and uh, under, and 98% of agricultural land ownership is yep. white. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... So that's, that's, that's not abstract. That's a really concrete right. reality yeah. in the industry that is that is not accidental. That's the legacy of racism and policy. That's the legacy of, of a, uh, a fundamentally extractive mindset towards people and towards land. Oh, yes, okay, I'm so glad we're on this. Um, the, the extraction regeneration conversation, I think, as a, as a community, we have to move beyond the ecological regeneration part, which we all love to nerd out about, mm. and talk about social regeneration. Um, and that starts with Yes, acknowledging systemic abuses, um, but also, it what well, with fights like climate and with you know wildfires and things like that, often it can be extractive to um, be in the like that that itself can cause repeated trauma, right? So uh, and and farming itself is fairly traumatizing. Like there's a lot of death in it, and there's yeah. a lot of failure through uh, forces that are largely not controlled by you. Um, and so I, I think that I would love to see our community um, and the folks who are listening and watching um, have more open conversations about mental health and emotional mm -hmm. health and how mm -hmm. to regenerate ourselves first, um, because I I see a lot of farmers pouring so much of themselves into the work. Uh, and then yesterday, Nephi Craig, um, mm -hmm. a Western Apache speaker, was talking about how self-care is, um, is, an, is an act of compassion because compassion is an act of recognizing and alleviating suffering. And often, often we don't recognize the suffering in ourselves. Yeah. And that's so critical to this work. Yeah. And if I could just follow up on that, too, um, you know, I think another piece of, like, to your original question, the, another piece of kind of like core advice for beginning farmers um, is that I think some of what makes these some of what makes these conversations non-abstract is the remembering and exercising of our personal agency. Mm. So you know, there's so many forces in markets and capitalism and the way that the world is set up right now that strip people of their of their experience of personal agency and their ability to exercise it. Um, and yet there is this kind of um, there is this 
one of my colleagues and colleagues and teachers at the Leadership for Sustainability program at the University of Vermont that I work in, um, uh, Kaylin Tutrees, talks about this idea of sovereign logic, mm. that, that individuals have a sovereign logic that is unique to us and, and that there's actually significant work to understand it and live it out in the world. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, like we're in a, we're in a big mess. Like we're in a really big mess, and and uh, and it's it's really not headed in a direction of getting cleaned up, to be honest. And um, and and yet individuals continue to have personal agency within that situation, and businesses continue to have agency within that situation, and organizations have agency. And so the um, the the inner willingness to return to and exercise that agency, even in the face of all that is all that we're under, I, I think, is a really crucial thing, and and for, you know, and for beginning farmers to uh, remember that they can do that, even when, as you know, as people say, even when the bullets are flying and the babies need to be fed, um, that's good. Like th that's and because that's going to be given that the public sector is not supporting what we're talking about right now substantially, that's going to be required every step of the way for yeah. people to keep deciding to do stuff. Absolutely. I don't know this is a conversation you wanted to have, but I'm loving it. <laughs> it is great. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Flew by. We covered a lot. Um, but I think that's actually a great point to end on, just this mm -hmm. idea of agency, right? Like there it can feel it can feel really overwhelming when you talk about these issues. Um, but um, you guys are doing amazing work and in, inspiring in, others to do the same. I've learned a lot from justice movements, because there are there from uh, my husband is Jewish, like, and uh, from racial justice movements also. Like, there's all there are there are times when the world is incredibly dark, and that's when that's when rooting down and building resilience and recognizing your agency to continue to heal is really critical. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Connor and Christine. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Thanks again to the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our on-tour coverage possible, and to Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture for having us here for the Young Farmers Conference. I'm Lisa Held. Stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.